How current events will shape the future of EMS, examining how the COVID-19 pandemic, civil unrest and reimbursement are impacting pre-hospital medicine and how leaders can care for the workforce. I'm Rob Lawrence and this is EMS One Stop. data for this year's EMS trend report was collected in 2019 BC. In this case, the BC stands for before COVID. At the time, we didn't know what was just around the corner. This year's report provides a real indicator of the circumstances and challenges we've already seen in the COVID-19 era. As EMS staff were the first warriors into the battle and onto the front line, mental health, post-traumatic stress injury and burnout have elevated to the top of the chart. Money is also becoming too tight to mention. The reduction in call and transport volume has reduced income and this has led to a reduction in hours, cancellation of overtime and ultimately layoffs and furloughs. As we return to the new normal, volumes are showing an increase but the financial pain remains. With 15% of the population out of work, a precipitous fall in health insurance will follow which will continue to place significant strain on organisational budgets. In addition, civil unrest has added another stressor and response challenges tensions spread through many cities and communities. Based on what we've gleaned from the 2020 EMS trend report data, we can envision how current events will shape EMS and what leaders can do to overcome the challenges ahead. The nation is eagerly awaiting a COVID-19 vaccine. But those of us in healthcare know that there are stages and phases to roll out that require trials and testing. This is not a brief process and even when the right vaccine is found, manufacturing, distribution and administration of 320 million doses is going to take time. EMS is going to remain on the front line for considerable time and probably will experience a case of first in and last out. Against this scenario, we must make sure that EMS workers are high on the priority for early immunisation and, for peace of mind, perhaps their families as well. This would not only be a great public health and risk reduction measure, but also a great morale boost. As all in EMS settle into this ultra-marathon, agencies must ensure their most important asset, their staff, are cared for. That care begins with ensuring the working conditions and environment are the best they can be, given the circumstances. This includes having sufficient PPE and decontamination equipment to ensure operational peace of mind. In addition to having sufficient tools to do the job, pastoral care must be high on the priority list, ensuring mental health, stress reduction and emotional wellness are addressed. The former requires good management, the latter great leadership. EMS has been operating at a high tempo in COVID-19 hotspots and latterly civil unrest flashpoints. The nation's emotions are running high, but EMS is doing what it does best, treating our fellow human beings with empathy, compassion and professionalism. EMS does not take a side, it never has. Whether it's treating the shooting victim or the shooter, a patient in a vehicle accident or the impaired driver that caused it. We care and we must continue to care. Without doubt, 
the increased intensity is contributing to provide a burnout. In the survey, 38% of respondents reported symptoms of burnout, including physical, emotional or mental exhaustion. As we move into the future, we must also be aware of our own diversity. The recently published EMS Assessment 2020 identified that only a small number of states could identify the ethnic demographics of our industry. The small section that did respond identified a less than diverse representation of the workforce. Here we must do better to both identify who we are and therefore work to ensure that our workforce reflects the communities in which we serve. The recently issued Nesemso Statement on Racial Bias and Unity announced the organisation's commitment to eliminate racism and promote racial equality. The statement noted we must ensure that each facet of the emergency medical system is inclusive, informed and committed to end racial inequality and racism. We must identify any biases within ourselves and have the courage and empathy to fully commit our platform and resources to create an inclusive, diverse society with the cornerstone of equality for all. We must eliminate any biases we have in dealing with any patient anywhere and at any time. We must also work to ensure that we provide an equity of coverage within the operating areas in which we serve. If a system does not provide an equitable, all-encompassing service, then it must be adjusted immediately to do so. A well-documented historical EMS example is the creation of the Richmond Ambulance Authority. Prior to 1990, several for-profit ambulance services operated in the city of Richmond, Virginia, and their combined response focus saw them essentially racing each other to the insured paying patients. This resulted in a biased level of service that left the lower socio-economic areas of the city virtually uncovered. Against that backdrop, the city created RAA, the Richmond Ambulance Authority, a public utility model to serve all equitably, regardless of the patient's ability to pay or insurance coverage. Since then, RAA has gained national and international recognition for its approach to EMS as a mobile integrated healthcare provider. Reimbursement has a place in this year's response and is an ongoing EMS challenge. Reimbursement is an essential element to the EMS circle of financial life. No income equals zero solvency or non-existent financial balance. Reimbursement not only means the physical act of reclaiming payment from insurance companies or Medicare, but also fighting the legislative battle to ensure that government rates cover the cost of readiness and therefore overall EMS delivery. In 2020 and beyond, the entire EMS industry and its myriad of associations must come together to advocate for reimbursement and provider benefits. The only way forward is to act with one voice so our elected officials receive one solid, consistent message. Similarly, the industry disruption caused by COVID-19 has seen EMS systems provide treat-in-place services to save capacity of emergency departments. This has been laudable. But under current reimbursement rules, it's been a massive loss leader and no income has been received for this important service rendered. This essential task is also a key component of the ET3 programme and we must now push to ensure we receive the appropriate fee for service. Another intention of ET3 was to increase the use of telemedicine. And in the last few months, CMS waivers have allowed its increased use and the ET3 concept has already proven its worth. We all hope that once the declared pandemic emergency ends, we do not have to take the retrospective steps as current waivers are withdrawn. Recruiting and retention continues to be a major issue for non 
fire-based EMS services and systems. Recruiting and retention tends to be a vicious circle as it takes three to four months to advertise, recruit, induct and clear new employees to operate in the street. And it can take just one day to lose an employee. This means organisations are always on the back foot when it comes to having the appropriate numbers of staff and are always having to recruit. This cycle demands significant time, effort and funding to keep staffing levels up. The antidote is simply to reduce staff attrition by improving perceived terms and conditions for the workforce and increase retention. Constant HR and staffing needs require significant funding, but imagine if similar amounts of budget was placed into retention initiatives. Whether it's an increase in the hourly rate, enhanced medical coverage or long service bonus programmes, the same amount spent on finding new people could be invested in current and therefore more experienced and productive staff. A major retention issue also plagues rural areas. The traditional model of volunteer fire departments and ambulance squads providing coverage on a 24-7 basis is declining to the point of closure. The solution has been to establish combination agencies where the volunteers fill the evenings and weekends as they are available and paid providers are brought in to staff the day shift. This model could well be an unfunded mandate to local governing bodies as they've never had to finance their first response to a major extent. Now they must dig deep into the coffer that has also shrunk because of COVID-19. The second rural danger also lies in reimbursement. Rural EMS usually equates to large or challenging geography and a dispersed population. The cost of readiness in this case equates to widely dispersed units to deal with low call volume. This drives the overall cost per hour to an unaffordable sum and has led some areas to lose their coverage as providers pull out because their business models do not allow such loss leaders. Rural versus urban also comes into focus when examining paramedic availability and certification. The EMS trend report observes better availability in urban areas than rural. This supports a statement frequently made by NAEMT President Matt Zavadsky, who has said we don't have a paramedic shortage, we have a paramedic maldistribution. It has often been said in years past that EMS is at a crossroads. While COVID-19 has created challenges for all, there's also an opportunity to pass through the intersection and hit the open road. But this will take cooperation, collaboration and above all care, not only for our patients, but our precious staff as well. So that was my narrative on how current events will shape the future of EMS. And as we're starting to do with all of these narrations now, I'm inviting somebody along to talk about uh, the, the, the topic and the subject. And it gives me great pleasure today to invite my good friend, Matt Zavadsky. And do you realize, Matt, we've now been doing 10 years of this stand-up comedy act that we do on the national circuit together? You know, and it's nice to be able to do it with you virtually, Rob. And, and it's even more nice to be considered somebody. So, so you did reference that you get somebody. <laughs> so thank you. I'm loving this. Yeah, I'm, I'm loving not doing it live with you because, as you know, I've got a great face for radio. So this is really cool. <laughs> We both do. Uh, um, I'm, I did mention you in my, in my narration and uh, the, something that I've often quoted you as saying, and so I hope you said it, but you did say once upon a time that uh, there isn't a paramedic shortage. There's a paramedic maldistribution. And now in the era of COVID, we are seeing less people are likely to join. More people are thinking about leaving. So how are we going to solve the recruiting and the retaining problem right now? 
So, Rabia, you pose, as always, a, a very good question. And let's start the conversation by backing up and, and taking the 56,000 foot view. And, and the 56,000 feet is now Google, Google, as you know, has deployed balloons in rural areas to provide internet connection, and they hover at 56,000 feet. So let's, let's look, take the 56,000 foot level. How many paramedics do we need? So maybe now is the time for us to really objectively and scientifically look at how many patients of the 40 million responses that EMS does every year, how many of those patients need ALS? And therefore, how many paramedics do we need to cover the patients who require ALS service? You know, years ago, people were um, critical of, of having you know, smaller number of paramedics covering a large area, but you look at some of the highest clinically performing EMS systems in the country, and they achieve that level of clinical excellence because they have a handful of very well-utilized, very well-trained, and very well-experienced paramedics. So the concept of having a paramedic on every ambulance probably isn't necessary. And having EMTs that have the important skills that might be needed in the first few minutes of a call um, or can do things that are low risk, high frequency, like here in, in the Republic of Texas, where it's you know, healthcare is sort of, this is the wild west of healthcare. In our system, EMTs do IM injections, they do breathing treatments, they, they do all sorts of things that might normally be considered ALS and our medical director feels comfortable credentialing EMTs to do that, including me, by the way, to be, because they're low risk and beneficial. So we need to start that conversation here, Rob. And, and when we say, you know, we've got, you know, three, 400, 500,000 paramedics, whatever, do we really need that many? And, and now we can go into the discussion about where are they and why are they there? Good points. And uh, let, yes, let's use data. Let's get away from tradition. And uh, because we've always done it that way, that's absolutely fantastic. And thinking back even 12, 14 years ago in the UK, the rapid response car was operated by the EMT because if you have to rapidly respond, it's probably a BLS skill you need to start off with. So, you know, there, there's also yeah, a case about that too. Absolutely. And, you know, we get into the whole, you know, yes, you need to have really, really good BLS. And let's look at the 5% of the call volume that, you know, really is time life sensitive. And that's truly what it is. I mean, here at the MedStar system, we go through this process periodically, annually, pretty much, where we look at all the EMD codes, we look at all the patient care reports and determine, you know, these 280 EMD response determinants got BLS care or routine ALS care. And these, you know, 25, um, 30, 40% of the time got a critical ALS intervention. So we're looking at our system and saying, okay, there's half of the response volume that we could send BLS units to and keep the paramedics available for the echoes and the deltas that they really need to go to. Well, I think with the fact that, uh, and again, a phrase I often use, the public sector purse is shrinking. People are taking a very critical look at what they've got, who they're paying, and obviously sometimes what's the pension worth uh, and cutting back. So perhaps this will inadvertently, COVID once again is, is a great uh, disruptor. And this may well cause people to take critical looks at the levels they are, they are uh, putting on their vehicles and on their crews versus the clinical outcome even. Right. So look at Seattle. So, you know, Seattle, 
King County always has the best cardiac arrest survival rates and um, if Boston EMS and, and Milwaukee and these places. And, and those are the systems that limit the number of paramedics and they only go to the high priority calls. And because those guys are real and gals are really, really good at what they do, they are resuscitation experts. They are heart failure experts and their outcomes are terrific. And, and maybe that is truly the model for the rest of the country. Rob, I think what you and I are gonna to have to try and start promoting pretty heavily is this whole concept of the rural areas. Because when you think about where the paramedics are typically today, and you see them typically in the heavily urbanized uh, Miami and Dallas and Houston and San Diego, where you can't swing a dead cat by the tail and, and hit a hospital, but you go out to you know, BFE, and I'm sorry I said that, but you go to rural uh, Montana or rural Georgia, rural South Carolina, and there's no hospital for 60 minutes and they can't get paramedics. Well, that's uh, absolutely, absolutely spot on. And uh, Greg Freeze, if you're listening, and I know you review all this sort of stuff, this is quick take number one that we need to go back and seriously, <laughs> using data, reevaluate. Next point, Matt, and uh, obviously how current events will shape the future of EMS. The current event of this week is that we've just had the announcement on the kind of restarting, if you like, of ET3, which is great. Um, ET3, of course, has 200 and something people, uh, organizations taking part of that. But what about the other 14,000 of us? Yeah, or, or more. Um, or more. You know, what's interesting is, is yes, the ET3 model, and, and I know that you and the AAA and um, any EMT and, yep. and MedStar, we worked real hard on the ET3 model as it was being developed. And we, we still believe it's a great model. The, the challenge is that it's too small scale. And even the folks at CMMI were somewhat disappointed with the number of applications that they got for the model. And for those people that looked into it and didn't do it, those of us that looked into it and are doing it, understand why. It's a pain in the ass, quite frankly, to, to meet all of these requirements. I, I just have to butt in here and said that you used a word that uh, <laughs> perhaps we shouldn't. The correct, the correct term is ass, but do carry on. <laughs> okay, sorry. Thank, thank you for that uh, clarification. So it's a small model scale, and, and yes, I'm glad to see that it's it's potentially moving forward. But the reality is, it needs to be a much larger scale. And the CMS waiver that was put into place back in April that um, pays ambulances for going to alternate destinations, and now the treatment in place uh, legislation that the large national associations are, are working through to get uh, into uh, codified into legislation, will certainly make this on a larger scale. So. Um, don't wait for the ET3 model. I know that um, people who are saying, hey, I didn't apply, I can't do it. That's not true. If you didn't apply, it doesn't mean you can't do it. It means that Medicare fee-for-service won't pay you for it. But you've got 60% of your other payer mix who are probably chomping at the bit, like ours are here in Texas, to say, yeah, we can't wait. Let's just start. So we're starting a program on October 1st. And we're not waiting for ET3 because a lot of the payers and a lot of the other partners want these models to move forward. And quite frankly, I've talked to some of the folks that are going through the ET3 process and they're beginning to ask, you know, do I even really need to do this? Because if our payers, the majority of our payers are willing to go into this model and we don't have to do all the things that are being required by CMMI, maybe we just do it and, and still have the quality metrics and all that sort of stuff. Um, and make sure that it's safe and effective and, and yields the outcomes that you want. Um, but 
I think the message to the listener is that really don't wait for the federal government to do innovation. Innovation happens at the local level. Um, just try something different and that'll change the reimbursement structure. There is a role for EMTs in that model. Certainly, you know, we've talked about the current events, but, you know, EMTs doing contact tracing and vaccines and, and other things that enhance the value of EMS is certainly an EMT level skill. Well, I was just going to go on and say that even in California right now, I've got a list that's a page long of 12 point um, aerial type of the things that we're doing that are extra. Some of the things we're doing because it's the right thing to do. Some of the things we're doing because it's goodwill and we get on with our partners. But most of those things probably aren't going to you know, allow, allow us to pay the people for doing the job. So, you know, there, there's a disruptor. But also, if we can formalize those things and not wait for the ET3, you know, stamp then we're going in the right direction because, you know, if we do what we always did, we're going to get what we always got. Right. And, and nothing against the federal government. I mean, by design, they move very deliberately, very slowly, you know, dot, I's, cross, T's. <laughs> so funny because it's been so long since I logged into the ET3 portal that I had to reset my password. And just to reset my password on the ET3 portal, it's like a five-step verification process, um, including you know, ha have you ever had an auto loan and, and how long was the loan in order to verify my identity? Uh, but there's a reason that the federal government is like that, and that's okay. But the changes that need to occur in EMS oftentimes cannot wait for the federal government to drive the change. It takes people like you and I, it takes people at the local level who have an interesting idea that they propose to somebody and you just test it and see what the outcomes are. It's like but medicine. Let me quote the uh, the president of AIM High, our good friend Chip Decker, who always says, you know, we can't afford to move at the speed of city. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. You know, so 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 that's so takeaway number two. Then, uh, Greg, quick take number two is that uh, you know, don't wait, get on with it because obviously the opportunity is out there. One of the things in my, my recent resume is I wrote the ET3 application for the city of Sioux Falls uh, as, as a project, and it was accepted. Um, really great ideas. And actually, the majority of it is around the, the private payers. And so, you know, you shouldn't wait to be told to get on with it. You should just do it. And I think someone's already oh, conned that, that catchphrase, just do it, but just do it. Yeah. And Rob, you raise a great point. Part of CMMI's goal in approving organizations to do ET3 was as people were contemplating doing it and applying, you had to get payer alignment. So that, that encouraged, some would say forced, but it encouraged a lot of the EMS agencies to really begin to look at their payer mix, find out who those payers are that are paying them, go talk to them and say, you know, I've got this idea. You pay us to use the highest cost transport to take the patient to the highest cost source of care. Medicare is going to change the model, and we're thinking about applying for it, but we need your support. Well, you know, that started 18 months ago, and those payers who were contacted and gave you letters of intent and did all sorts of things because they wanted to pay the same way, they don't move at the speed of government either. And so they start emailing saying, hey, it, it's been like 12 months. Hey, it's been 13 months. When are we going to do this? And sooner or later, you just don't wait, and you say, well, when do you want to start? <laughs> just right. do it. Back in 29 BC, and in this case, BC stands for before COVID, right? Um, you know, 
if, if you'd have said to me all of this stuff that's just happened, it would be like a bad tabletop exercise where you go, this stuff never happens for real and it's happening for real. Right now, you're on the periphery of a hurricane down there. I'm, I've got ash raining on my patio furniture from the bobcat fire. Uh, COVID is raging all around us. Um, but... Of course, the next challenge is, uh, Matt, can you go out and, inoc and inoculate 320 million people, please? Do we have a role in that? Can we do it? <laughs> yeah, we can, because every EMT, every EMS provider, heck, with local medical control, approval, and training, every first responder can stick a needle in somebody's arm. Way back when I was in Daytona Beach, we did a program for the county that I was the EMS director for. And, and you know, Florida is God's waiting room and you've got a lot of people there that are relatively old and they need flu vaccines. Well, we did drive through flu vaccines at all the fire stations. Firefighters did flu vaccines. They, you know, on a Saturday in October, they all pulled their apparatus out onto the, onto the bay or onto the apron out of the way. And, and for eight hours, people drove to the local fire station, never got out of their vehicle because they have drive through, drive through uh, apparatus space stick their arm out the window, fill out a, a couple of quick forms, get vaccinated and, and get on with it. Um, and we did 780 people in one day. Um, and that's just one community. So imagine if, if the collective minds of EMS, not only with stations, but with mobile resources and community paramedics and EMTs. And, um, you know, we just started working with our local health department, county health department here. Um, and that's exactly it. Even tracking, back to Rob's favorite four-letter word, data, Looking at last year's flu volume on the EMS side, how many EMS responses did we do in certain areas where the crew indicated uh, influenza-like illness is the primary impression, and heat map it and say, okay, this zip code, this community, this neighborhood, this church catchment area, whatever, had you know the highest, second highest, third highest, and we take the AMBUS and we advertise, hey, on Sunday after church from noon until 7 p.m., the MedStar AMBUS is going to be parked at you know, First Baptist Church of Fort Worth, and we're going to be doing flu vaccines. There'll be a line out the door. And th that's, that's the innovation that EMS can bring to the public health arena in doing vaccine distribution. Which segues nicely into the thing I said on a conference call we were on earlier, that uh, I do believe we are the Marine Corps of the Public Health Navy. And I've got a funny feeling we're going to be hitting that beach sometime soon. You know, it's funny, Rob, you say that, and you may know this, but the U.S. Public Health Service uh, which is the uniform side of the public health sector, is actually a branch of the Navy. Indeed. Twice a week, I'm on a conference call with a good friend of mine, Commander Brian Christensen, uh, who's with CDC and uh, a commander with the public health. So, yes, indeed. Um, we're coming to the end, but Matt Zavadsky, man of MedStar, also president of NAMEMT, I'll give you the final word here. What have you got to say to all the guys out there on the trucks right now? I would say... Get out your binoculars, get out your telescopes. The future is here. You don't have to look much farther to, to see it, but um, do something different. Uh, maybe that becomes our mantra, Rob, for, for this, this sort of concept, if we, since we can't use just do it, do something different. A and whether it's you know, helping patients navigate from a 911 call and not go to the emergency room, whether it's um, doing the vaccines, whether it's doing community education on, on good, um, you know, hygiene or just do something different that benefits your community to show that you can be more than just a, a mode of transport or just more than just sitting around playing checkers waiting for a 911 call. So if we do what we always did, we'll get what we always got. Matt Zavadsky, thanks, mate. I appreciate this like you wouldn't believe. My, my pleasure, Rob. Thanks for the invite.